Good morning. morning. Happy Father's Day. My name is Mario. I'm one of the pastors here. And we are continuing the series we've been in for a while now called Life of Paul. And we're now at uh, part nine. And it says the title of the sermon is Arriving in Jerusalem and Things Go South. And the reason it's called that is because that's what happens in today's text. Paul arrives in Jerusalem and things go very bad very quickly. Um, so when we say that Paul arrives in Jerusalem, this, that's what happens in the text that I'm about to read to you. And this, Paul's uh, showing up in Jerusalem is something that we have been building toward for a little while now. For those of you who have been here, maybe you've noticed it. Um, so this goes back, it depends on how you measure it. Okay, two chapters ago in the book of Acts, 73 verses ago, or four sermons ago, whichever you prefer, that's when, that's when Paul first started saying, I'm going to Jerusalem, right? He was in, I believe the sermon was called Ephesus C, and it was four weeks ago um, that he, Paul said, I'm gonna, I want to go to Macedonia, and then I'm going to go to Greece, and then I want to go to Jerusalem, right? And eventually to Rome. And then the next passage, he starts heading to Jerusalem. And then in the next passage, there's this little pastor's conference in Miletus as he's on his way to Jerusalem. And then in the next sermon that we did with the next passage, he goes across the Mediterranean Sea and he shows up. Um, there's three different towns that he goes through on his way to Jerusalem. He goes to uh, Tyre and then Ptolemais and then Caesarea. And the people in those towns, some of them say to him, don't go to Jerusalem because they heard he's on the way to Jerusalem. And he said, I got to go to Jerusalem. And so finally now, today, we're at the passage where he shows up in Jerusalem. This has been coming up over and over again and he finally gets there. Um, today's passage is a big one. It is, starts in chapter 21. I'm going to start reading in verse 17, and it goes all the way to chapter 22, verse 29. So it's over 60 verses. Okay, really big passage. But the reason I kept it that way is because I really feel like this is, this is something that should be treated as one episode. Like this is something that happened, and I don't want to just cut it off right, like right in the middle of the story, and then he... <gasps> You know, like it's just, this all goes together, these next 60 verses, I think, and so that's how we're going to handle it. I'm going to teach you um, all 60 verses today. Um, we're going to read it. Now, teaching 60 Bible verses all in one Sunday is not the way we normally do it here. Um, reading 60 verses all in a row is not something I usually do here, um, but I just, I think it fits what we're about to do best. And so, if you are here this morning and you th- are thinking to yourself, well, I, I don't want to hear 60 Bible verses read to me. <laughs> out loud all in a row, I will say this to you. First of all, number one, this is a very interesting story that I'm about to read to you. Very interesting, surprisingly interesting story considering it's not a very famous one. Um, Secondly is I'm gonna read it in an interesting way, okay? You will be fine. So here's our passage for this morning. Acts chapter 21, starting in verse 17. When we reached Jerusalem, the brothers welcomed us gladly The following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. And after greeting them, he related in detail what God did among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said, you see, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. But they have been told about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to abandon Moses by telling them not to circumcise their children or to walk in our customs. So what is to be done? They will certainly hear that you've come. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have obligated themselves with a vow. Take these men, purify yourself along with them, and pay for them to get their heads shaved. And then everyone will know what they were told about you amounts to nothing, but that you yourself are also careful about observing the law. 
With regard to the Gentiles who have believed, we've written a letter containing our decision that they should keep themselves from food, sacrifice to idols, from blood, from what is strangled, and from sexual morality. Then the next day, Paul took the men, having purified himself along with them, and entered the temple, announcing the completion of the purification days when the offering for each of them would be made. As the seven days were about to end, the Jews from Asia (laughs) saw him in the temple complex and stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people, our law in this place. What's more, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has profaned this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian in the city with him, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple complex. The whole city was stirred up, and the people rushed together, and they seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple complex, and at once the gates were shut. As they were trying to kill him, word went up to the commander of the regiment that all Jerusalem was in chaos. Taking along soldiers and centurions, they immediately ran down to them. Seeing the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander came up, took him into custody, and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He asked who he was and what he had done. Some in the mob were shouting one thing and some another, and since he was not able to get reliable information because of the uproar, he ordered him to be taken into the barracks. When Paul got to the steps, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the mob's violence, for the mass of people followed, yelling, "'Take him away!' As he was about to be brought into the barracks, Paul said to the commander, "'Am I allowed to say something to you?' He replied, "'Do you know Greek? Aren't you the Egyptian?' who raised a rebellion some time ago and led 4,000 assassins into the wilderness? Paul said, I'm a Jewish man from Tarsus of Cilicia, a citizen of an important city. Now I ask you, let me speak to the people. After he had given permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned with his hand to the people. When there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language. Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense before you. Now, when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became became even quieter. He continued, I am a Jewish man, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel and educated according to the strict view of our patriarchal law, being zealous for God, just as all of you are today. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women in jail, as both the high priest and the whole council of elders can testify about me. After I received letters from them to the brothers, I traveled to Damascus to bring those who were prisoners there to be punished in Jerusalem. As I was traveling and near Damascus, about noon, an intense light from heaven suddenly flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus the Nazarene, the one you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but they did not hear the voice of the one who was speaking to me. Then I said, what should I do, Lord? And the Lord told me, get up and go into Damascus, and there you will be told about everything that is assigned for you to do. Well, since I couldn't see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. Someone named Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good reputation with all the Jews residing there, came and stood by me and said, Brother Saul, regain your sight. And in that very hour, I looked up and saw him. And then he said, The God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will, 
to see the righteous one and hear the sound of his voice. For you will be a witness for him to all people of what you have seen and heard. And why delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins by calling on his name. After I came back to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple complex, I went into a visionary state and I saw him telling me, hurry and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. But I said, Lord, they know that in synagogue after synagogue, I had those who believed in you imprisoned and beaten. And when the blood of your witness Stephen was being shed, I was standing by and approving. And I guarded the clothes of those who killed him. And then he said to me, go, because I will send you far away to the Gentiles. They listened to him up to this word. And then they raised their voices shouting, wipe this person off the earth. It's a disgrace for him to live. And they were yelling and flinging aside their robes and throwing dust in the air. And the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks, directing that he be examined with a scourge so that he could discover the reason. They were shouting against him like this. As they stretched him out for the lash, Paul said to the centurion standing by, is it legal for you to scourge a man who is a Roman citizen and is uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went and reported to the commander saying, what are you going to do for this man as a Roman citizen? The commander came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, he said. The commander replied, I bought this citizenship for a large amount of money, but I was born a citizen, Paul said. Therefore, those who were about to examine him withdrew from him at once. The commander too was alarmed when he realized Paul was a Roman citizen and he had bound him. So that's our passage this morning. That's this morning's story. There's quite a lot to it, but you can kind of tell it all goes together. And so I'm going to go through it, um, just kind of summarizing the story, maybe going through any parts that weren't self-explanatory, and then I'm going to give you two points of application at the very end. Okay, you ready? So Paul shows up in Jerusalem, and when he arrives, there's happiness for, I don't know, a few days. Like it goes okay at first, and then it gets really bad, as you can see. But at first, he shows up, meets with the Christian leaders that are there, and talks to them all about what he had been doing when he was being a missionary in Gentile territory. And they were like, oh, that's wonderful. And then they immediately bring up the problem from the way they see it now that he's in Jerusalem. They say, there's rumors going around about you here. Like, I don't know if it's wonderful what you were doing out there, but just so you know, nobody likes you here. Like, they all hate you. And they're going to notice, like, when you walk around town, don't think like, oh, it's going to be fine. Like, what they've heard, the rumor going around town, the way that people are teaching about you is, and he explains, he says, that you tell Jewish people that are in Gentile lands to stop, uh, not to circumcise their children, not to follow the laws of Moses, not to follow any of our customs and traditions. And so they're into all that, and they hear that you're telling everybody not to do that, and so they, they don't like you. They are really upset at you. And then he says, so this is what I think we should do. Um, and, and before I even tell you what he says, as best as I can tell by reading this, it seems to me that the rumor that they heard was like partially based on the truth, but sort of exaggerated. Um, it is true that Paul was going in Gentile lands, and he really was preaching to Jewish people in the synagogues that were in these Gentile lands. And for the most part, Paul was preaching to Gentiles, telling them they did not need to circumcise their children and they did not need to follow the laws of Moses to be saved. And they don't have to become Jewish people and follow all their customs and traditions in order to be a Christian. He was teaching that to the Gentile people. But the thing that he's being like accused of, the rumor that's going around town is that he was going up to Jewish people and telling them not to do it, right? Not just saying to Gentiles, you don't have to do this, but going up to Jewish people and forbidding them. You may not follow your customs. You are not to continue to following the laws of Moses, okay? which is when you look, read through the book of Acts, that's not what Paul was doing. So it looks like this was like they took something that was true and then exaggerated it. 
So James says, here's what we got to do. They've heard this about you. We need to fix, we need to do a PR campaign. We need to get you to go out like in a very public place where everybody can see you and we need you to do something super Jewish so that all of the Jewish people will all look and go, oh, look at him. He is one of us. He's not telling people to not follow the laws. He's following the customs right now, right? That's what they tell him to go do. Go to the temple with these guys. The thing that he is told to do, it seems to me that it's a Nazarite vow. I don't know for sure. I'm not even sure if it matches it perfectly. But the only thing I can, that I'm aware of in the Old Testament that matches this whole head shaving and purification and make a sacrifice at the end, it would be the Nazarite vow. So this would be a, a Jewish um, practice and ceremony that goes back to, I think, the book of Deuteronomy. And so he's saying, oh, we want you to do this Deuteronomy thing with the head shaving and the animal sacrifices in front of everybody. So they all go like, look, look, he's one of us. So apparently Paul goes, all right, I will. And that's what he does. So then when he gets there, it looks like it's on day seven. So there was one good week, I guess. And then on day seven, the Jews from Asia show up and stir everything up to become even worse. Now, Jews from Asia, just so you know what this is, I'm going to tell you who I think these people are. First of all, the word Asia here, as we've talked about in the past, um, does not, is not referring to China. Okay, there was, a, there was a, in the Roman Empire, there was a province called Asia. If you remember, I think it was four sermons ago, five sermons ago, and six sermons ago, okay? If you were here for any of those three, there was a three-week period where we talked about what Paul did when he was in Ephesus. The name of the sermons were Ephesus A, Ephesus B, Ephesus C, okay? I haven't gotten any more creative since then. Um, so there was the three, we did three weeks on the passages where Paul was in Ephesus. And I told you, Ephesus was the main primary city in Asia, right? And then the, from Ephesus, Paul became very well known there. He was preaching the gospel there. And then the gospel spread out from Ephesus to the other villages in Asia, there was a time in that story, you may remember, where Paul is in Ephesus and he starts by speaking to the Jewish people in the synagogue. And it says he spoke there for three months. So the Jewish people in Asia, in particular, the Jewish people in Ephesus, the main city in Asia, they knew Paul. Like he had preached there like 12 times in a row. Okay, They knew when he, when he showed up and he was doing his teaching in the synagogue. And after about three months, they were like, we don't like this anymore. We're done with you. And so Paul left the synagogue and started teaching, teaching Gentiles in the hall of Tyrannus. That's who I think these people are. When it says the Jews from Asia, especially the way they talk about Trophimus and the stuff they talk about Paul, I think these are people who knew him. Okay? Paul had been in Ephesus for nearly three years just before this. And I think that's where these people are, are from. And so now Paul shows up in Jerusalem. And when he gets there... These people who did not like him back home, they're there in Jerusalem at the same time. And they might say, well, what a coincidence. Wait a minute. So how far is Ephesus from Jerusalem? Yeah, it's like over a thousand miles away. Well, what are the odds that, these, that Paul's from Ephesus, he's been there the past few years, and he shows up in Jerusalem, and then these other people also from Ephesus would also happen to be in Jerusalem at the exact same time that Paul is. Wouldn't that be like a crazy coincidence? No, because it's probably Pentecost. If you remember in the story earlier, Paul's trying to get Jerusalem by Pentecost. Pentecost is this holiday that would have had Jewish people from all over the place coming into Jerusalem for the holiday. Just like people go to New York to watch the ball drop, it would not have been crazy for different Jewish people from all different countries to all be in Jerusalem at this time. So Paul shows up and, oh, there's that group of people from the town I've just been living in. They're also here to celebrate the same holiday and they don't like me. So anyway, so they're there, they see him, and they stir up the crowd, and they start shouting, and they start accusing, and you see they add an extra accusation in. This is verse 28. It said, um, what's more, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has profaned this holy place. Now that is a huge accusation. That is a big deal, because you might wonder, why did they react to that by killing him? And the answer is, because that's what they did when Greeks were brought into the temple. They killed them. 
Like that was the normal. The thing that they're accusing him of is a really big deal. The temple in Jerusalem had a section of it called the court of the Gentiles, where people who were Gentiles, foreigners were allowed. And then I think there was a gate and then there was this other section and foreigners, people who had not been circumcised, people who had not converted to Judaism, they were not allowed in the intersection. Okay? You could not go in there as a Gentile. And so they accuse him of doing this. Well, they killed people who did that. Um, every book that I've read on this says that like, this was a capital crime for them. They would kill people who did that. I think one, of the, I, one preacher one time I heard said that, they, that archaeologists have found like, uh, signs and placards from this time period that were from the temple that said, like, enter at your own risk. You know, if, you're not, if you're a foreigner, we will kill you. Like, they put that up. So the accusation is is that that's what Paul did. Paul snuck in this uh, Ephesian guy, this Gentile guy named Trophimus in there, okay? So that's that's the accusation they made. That's why they go to kill him. So the next few verses, they start beating him to death. They would have beat him to death except the cops showed up, right? Did you catch that part? I mean, they didn't have police officers back then, but the Roman Empire had soldiers and soldiers would like, you know, make sure that the city was at peace and not in chaos and people weren't beating each other to death. And so the soldiers showed up. And as the soldiers show up, they, you know, they leave him alone, and there he is, and they arrest him, right? It says they bound him with two chains. So the fact that they arrest him for being beat is really unfair, but when you read the story, you realize that's what saved his life, okay? Even though it's unfair to arrest someone for being beaten by people, it is, it, it, that was the thing that caused him to be separated from the mob and to not die. So they take him over to the barracks, and then at some point, Paul's able to talk to the commander, and he says, hey, can we talk for a second? And the commander's like, yeah, aren't you the Egyptian with the 4,000 assassins that's like leading revolutions around here? You know, so obviously there's this case of mistaken identity, right? There's none, none of that matches Paul at all. So, so somehow in all this confusion, I don't know how many people that were screaming that day thought he was the Egyptian with the 4,000 assassins that was leading revolutions. Um, but that's what he asked Paul, and Paul said, no, right? I'm a Jewish man. I'm from Tarsus. Can I please speak to the people? Um, now, what I think is happening here is I think that the commander realizes that a mistake, uh, uh, mis- like mistaken identity has happened. That, and so he thought Paul was someone different than he was. And maybe he's wondering, maybe the crowd thinks Paul is someone different than he is. Maybe if Paul, we can get a chance to just calm everybody down and let Paul explain what's going on, maybe that will bring peace back to the city. That's my guess as to why the commander said, sure, you can address the people. So Paul gets up in front of the crowd of people. This is crazy to think they were just beating him and now he's standing up in front of the people that beat him. So I'm guessing he's got a bloody lip and a black eye and all that. And he's talking to the people who just did it to him. And what does he do? He talks about what Jesus has done in his life. Like he looks at the very people who were just trying to beat him to death. And he says, I want to tell you about Jesus. And so he talks about his life and he talks about Jesus coming into his life. And he talks about how Jesus has changed his life and even made him a missionary to the Gentiles. It was at that point they didn't want to hear any more. Missionary to the Gentiles, that's the thing we're upset about. You and the Gentiles. That's, and so they were all upset. And so they start throwing dirt in the air and taking their clothes off and screaming. So at this point, the commander re-arrests him and says, we're going to whip him until he tells us what's going on. Now, that part of the story seems confusing. The first time I read it, like, why in the world is he going to beat the guy for getting up and talking for four minutes and the crowd getting upset? But I, one of the books I was reading said something that I thought, oh, that makes sense. And so this is what I think is going on here. You got to picture this from the commander's perspective. There's the commander. He doesn't know this guy. He's talking to Paul in Greek, it says, right? So Paul and and the commander share language, Greek. Paul in Greek says, hey, I'm a Jewish man. Could I please address the crowd? The commander is probably thinking, sure, address the crowd and calm them down because that's my job. My job is to bring peace to the city. And if you can help me do my job better by bringing peace to the situation, go for it. So then Paul gets up and starts speaking to the crowd in what language? 
Yeah, the Hebrew language, which is probably a reference to the Aramaic. So he starts speaking the Hebrew language. Very likely, the commander doesn't know that language. So the commander says, yeah, go calm them down. Paul gets up and starts speaking a language the commander doesn't know. Now he's sitting there watching going, I don't know what he's saying, but I hope he's saying peaceful, calm down stuff, right? But I don't know what he's saying. So then about two or three minutes into it, it seems like a hush comes over the crowd and it's like, I don't know what he's saying, but it's working, right? And then he says something in a different language and then the people are all upset again and they're screaming and clothes are flying off and dust flying in the air. And I think the commander at this point is going like, you are doing what I told you not to do, right? I don't want the people riled up and I don't know what you just said in the Hebrew language, but like you just upset everybody again. So he grabs him, takes him in, they're gonna beat him, they're gonna whip him. And he says... I mean, is this okay? I'm a Roman citizen and there's been no trial. And they're all like, what? We didn't realize that. And so they all start having conversations about this and check it out. And they go, sure enough, well, no, we are not going to be whipping this guy if he's a Roman citizen and there's been no trial. So that's what, that's what happens in today's passage. So that's our story. And one thing I like to do a lot of times at this point is once we understand what the Bible says, once we understand what the story is that we learned, to ask the question, what's the point? Okay. Why is this in here, okay? What, what is the point of the story? And so I will tell you this. That the, I think the primary reason this is in here, this is a large narrative about Paul's life, and it is a part of an even larger narrative called the book of Acts. And I think the reason that Luke wrote this down, everything I just read to you, is to explain how Paul was in Jerusalem and did not die there, but rather ended up in Roman custody, because the way that the book of Acts ends, like this story, like basically, Luke is explaining how we got to, how we get from where we were in the story to where it's going. Because if you get to the very end of the book of Acts, Paul is in Rome and he's sharing the gospel unhindered. And it's kind of the cool, I don't know, exciting surprise ending to the book of Acts. Paul is in, so the Acts starts in the city of Jerusalem, but then ends with Paul in Rome sharing the gospel unhindered to all these Gentiles. But how did it get from one place to the other? How did the gospel spread the way it did? And I think this part of the story, Luke is explaining how Paul did not get killed in Jerusalem, but rather ended up in the custody of the Romans. That's why it's in there, I think. Now, if I just ended the sermon right here, said, well, now you, that's the story. That's why it's in there. Let's close in prayer. I think there may be some of you who would be like, well, thank you for the nice history lesson, Pastor. But I think a lot of you would be like, oh, come on, come on, come on. Like, can you please give me, like, what does this have to do with my life? Please tell me what this has to do with, with my life. And, and I'll start by just telling you the truth. Luke wasn't thinking about your life when he wrote it, Okay. So, so it's just important to acknowledge that when we're reading through this, we go, what did, what, what did Luke mean? What was he trying to tell me? He wasn't trying to tell you anything, all right? He was writing to a guy named Theophilus, and he was explaining to Theophilus how the gospel spread the way it did in the first century. That's why he wrote it. Now, having said that, I do have two applications for you, okay? Two lessons that we can learn from this. There may be a lot of lessons, because there's a lot of verses here. But there are two parts I want to focus on, and I think two things that we can apply to our life. So the two parts I'm going to focus on are the main two parts of the story. And they are um, the Jewish people attacking Paul, and then Paul's speech that he gives to them after he, you know, after, afterwards. So we've got the Jewish people attacking Paul. That's kind of the first half of the story. And then we've got Paul addressing them in his speech afterwards. Those are the two main parts. So as we're talking about the Jews attacking Paul, what can we learn from that part? And I'm going to just give you one lesson. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but this is what I wrote down. Gossip can get someone killed. 
don't know if you caught that in the story, but that's what happens. And I think you maybe know this in real life, even though we don't phrase it that way, we don't phrase it dramatically like that, it's true. It was true then, it's true now. Gossip can get people killed. In this story, Paul shows up to a town of people who heard bad things about him, heard exaggerated things about him that were not true, right? And James starts to worry, we've got to fix your, we've got to, fi- we've got to do a PR campaign because these people have heard rumors about you, right? They've passed on a bad report about you. Now, any of those people in that city could have gone up to Paul and said, is it true that you are telling people who are Jewish that they're not even allowed to circumcise their children anymore? They could have asked him and he could have given his side. But it looks like James knew they're not gonna ask you. They're just gonna keep spreading on this bad report about you. Then seven days later, the Jews from Asia come and they also make a false accusation, right? And their accusation is, hey, um, here, we'll go to verse 28 and verse 29. Uh, men of Israel, this is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people, our law in this place. So he's, the first they're saying, hey, you, you guys, he's doing this little thing with the head shaved thing, looking like he's all Jewish. Trust me, we are in Gentile territory most of the time and we see, what he, we see what he teaches out there, right? And then they say, what's more, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has profaned this holy place. Now look at the reasoning. They made the accusation. The accusation is he did something that we kill people for, right? He brought a Greek in, but look at the reasoning. How did they know? Why why did they make the accusation? He brought Greeks into the temple. This is the reasoning. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian in the, what's the word? City, not the temple. They had seen Trophimus in the city with him. So at some point they saw him hanging out with a Gentile. Look at him hanging out with a Gentile. Who do you think he is just being nice to those people? And then later on, they saw him with four guys in the temple. And they assumed that one of them was Trophimus, right? It says, and they supposed that Paul brought him into the temple complex. So it's interesting because they make this false false accusation, but I'm not sure that they were lying by like the typical way we define the word lie. I don't think that the the Jews from Asia were saying, we know that Trophimus was not in the temple with him, but we're just going to say it anyway to get him killed. They thought it. They saw him hanging around the guy, they made the assumption, and then they falsely accused him without verifying it. At any point, I think these guys could have walked up to him and said, hey, Was Trophimus the Gentile from Ephesus? Was he one of the people you brought in to the temple with you? And Paul could have said, no, left him home because I wanted him to live, right? They could have checked. They didn't. They just started throwing out accusations. Now, isn't it interesting? Have you ever noticed how quick you are to believe something bad about someone if you already dislike them? Right, like, like if you hear a bad thing about a person, now if you hear a bad thing about a person you respect, like a lot of times we're like, well, I'm very skeptical of that. I'd have to make sure I don't think that he would do that, right? I don't think she would do that. But if you hear about bad behavior from someone you already don't like, have you ever noticed you don't need to verify? You just know it's true? Isn't that weird? Right, you hear this bad thing and you, like, do you go like, well, I need to check and make sure their reputation might be, might be besmirched right now. Let's go check, no. You don't even use the word besmirched, do you? <laughs> No, you don't do that. When I, all of us, when we hear a bad thing about someone we already don't like, we're like, well, that's got to be true. How do you know? Well, because they're awful. And then someone just said they did something awful. They must have. Isn't that weird that we do that? So they did not check. They just threw out their accusation and they almost got him killed. Gossip and slander are such interesting sins. I think they're interesting because in a lot of ways they are different than other sins. The thing that I think is most interesting is gossip and slander 
the way they work is <laughs> when we are doing it, it's really hard to tell that we're doing it. But when other people are doing it to us, it's very obvious that it's wrong, right? When we are, when we are committing gossip or when we are participating in slander, it's very hard for us in the moment to tell that we're doing something wrong. But when other people do it to us, it is very obvious that they are doing something that is wrong. Have you noticed that? Have you, isn't it weird that when you're doing it, it's like, oh, I, don't, I don't know if I'm really gossiping. I'm not sure this is like slander, right? Like it's real hard, like am I doing anything wrong? I don't know, I don't know if I'm doing anything wrong. But if someone does it to you, you're like, wicked, that's wicked. Why are they spreading a bad report around me? Why aren't they talking to me? I'm standing right here. They could verify. They could ask me my side of the story right now if they wanted to. But instead, they're just passing it along, right? That They are wicked. But then you do it, and it's like, well, no, no, no. So if someone were to accuse you, like, aren't you gossiping? No, I'm not. not that's not what's happening. We are just at Chili's after church talking. That's what's <laughs> happening. We're just talking. This is called talking. It's not slander, Okay. In fact, when I told the story, I said, I said, I don't know if this is true. This is just what I've heard. And then I told the bad story about him. Doesn't that disclaimer make it okay? If I say, I don't know if this is true, then I can say whatever I want, right? Right? In fact, I didn't even bring it up. We were just talking and they brought it up. They brought him up. And then, I, and then after they brought him up, I said, oh, you want to know what I heard last week? But I mean, I didn't, it's not like I, I didn't show up to do it, right? In fact, it was, it was a prayer request. Like this is... <laughs> Have you seen this? I, I heard she cheated on her husband and she's going to leave him. It's so awful. I can't believe she did that. And so I said, we should all pray for her. That's all I was doing. I'm not saying every prayer request is gossip. I'm just saying when we're doing it, it's hard to tell it's wrong. But when someone, have you, any of you had someone do it to you? And it was so obvious that it was wrong, wasn't it? So all I'm saying is, I think this passage, because it's so extreme, the guy almost, got, gets, almost gets killed for it. It reminds us, you are to do unto others as you would have them do unto you, right? Jesus taught that. It seems to me what that means in this case is, like generally speaking, that means you should speak about others the way you would want other people to speak about you when you're not around. Okay, the second part of the story is where Paul speaks to the people. And this is a pretty incredible one, because like I said, I think he's already got the bloody lip. I think he's already partially injured. And then he's talking to the people, some of whom were the people who were just hurting him. And he wants to tell them about Jesus. I can't imagine if I were in the same situation that I would say to the commander, can I go and talk to those people that were just trying to kill me? But that's what he does. And he uses it as an opportunity to tell the people about Jesus. He uses it as an opportunity to share about Jesus. He does not pre like preach the whole gospel. He does not get up in front of the people and say, Adam and Eve sinned, they brought a curse upon this earth because of sin, and then God sent his son Jesus in order to undo the curse. He died on the cross for our sins in our place. He rose again, like freeing us from curse, freeing us from death. We can live forever with, with Jesus. We can live forever with God if we trust in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. He's coming back to implement all this. He didn't explain all of that. He just tells the story, this is what I was like, and then Jesus came into my life, this is the way my life is now. And I wanted to point out to you, like, we can do the same thing. That's not something that is unique to Paul. Like, oh, Paul had the opportunity to tell people what Jesus did in his life. No, he took an opportunity to tell people what Jesus has done in his life. You also, in normal everyday conversations, can tell people about what Jesus has done in your life. As things come up and you go, this is the way it was for me, and then Jesus came into my life, and it's different now. 
And if you would say, well, but how would I do that? I mean, I don't, I don't think I have anything to say about what Jesus has done in my life. Well, then you should be worried that you're not a Christian. Like if your testimony about Jesus is this, is there was a point in my life where I believed him and trusted him as my Lord and Savior. And then from that time on, my life is exactly the same as it would be had Jesus never existed. Then you should be worried you're not a Christian. You're not actually a follower of Jesus. But if Jesus has come into your life, then he has changed you. And there is something to say. And so we can testify about Jesus. I'll just tell you a little story. It's not a really significant thing, but um, about one year ago at this time, um, I was on staff at the Ocala Civic Theater for just a very short period of time. Uh, two, I worked there for two weeks just uh, at a theater camp that they were doing, okay? Don't worry, this is my, main, this is my job. I just, I just did a little side job there for two weeks. They have this, Ocala Civic Theater has this theater camp, and, and for those of you that don't know me, that's, that's one of my hobbies. I studied it in college. Um, they have this theater camp, and they'll bring in someone that will do, teach music, and they bring in someone else that teaches dance, and then they bring in someone that teaches acting. I was the person, one of the people that was there that was teaching acting at this camp, for five-year-olds to 12-year-olds. So I was uh, teaching them acting. One particular day after camp is done, the parents have all shown up, picked up all the kids, dro- driven, you know, drove off, and I was standing there with one of the other, like one of my colleagues, one of the other teachers at the camp. And we're standing on the stage. The kids have all left. We're standing on the stage. She is not a, she's not a Christian, not a believer in Jesus Christ, just my coworker at the theater. And we were talking about one of the kids in the class and then the parents and then kind of got onto this topic. She was saying, talking about bad parenting, which is kind of cool that this, I guess, fell on Father's Day. She was talking about parenting and talking about how it's like sad. I think she was talking about fathers in particular, but it's sad when there's bad parenting because a lot of times what you'll see is a kid that was trained up the wrong way as a kid, then grows up to become a bad parent and then does that with their kid and the cycle just continues on and on forever. And as I sat there listening, I was nodding my head and like agreeing with her, yep, that, that's a thing, that is a thing, that you have, we have you know, a dysfunctional life and then the person grows up and passes that on to their kids and then they pass it on to their kids, that's definitely a thing. Um, but I said to her, he said, but it doesn't have to be that way. Like you, you can have a bunch of dysfunction in your life and then your life can be different and you cannot pass that on to the next generation. Like that happens. And I said, I think in some ways that has even happened in my own life. I think there are dysfunctions that I grew up with as a kid and now as an adult, I am not passing them on to my kids. I mean, maybe some, but hopefully I'm not passing all of them on to my kids. And I'm hoping my kids will be even better parents than I am, Right? So I said, you don't have to do that. Like my life has changed in such a way that I'm not passing on every dysfunction that I ever had onto my kids. And then as I said something like that, like as I was talking like that, there was this prompting inside of me that went, you better tell her why. (laughs) And so I obeyed the prompting and I said, oh, it's because Jesus came into my life. It's because I believe in God. And so I just very quickly told her, I said, when I was 14 years old, I came to believe in Jesus. And he came into my life and I have no other explanation for it. Like a miraculous, supernatural thing happened to me. I was living my life one way. I believed in Jesus. He came into my life and the trajectory of my life is just very different than it would have been had that not happened. Like that's what happened to me. And I'm not, I, I don't know what the results of that were. I don't know what came of that conversation. I mean, I know what the immediate results were. She did not like fall to the ground and dust and ashes and say, what must I do to be saved? I think she said something like, that's cool. And, and I don't work there anymore. So, I mean, I literally, I haven't talked to her since. I think that's one of the last things I ever said to her. I have not talked to her since then. So I don't know. I don't know what came of it. But I look back at that situation and I realize it was a moment where I was able to not preach a whole sermon, right. 
I mean, it took me like a minute probably to say it. I didn't get to preach a whole sermon. I just had a minute where I was able to testify. I was one way and things are different now and it's because of Jesus. And I was able to say that to someone in the midst of like a normal conversation without changing the topic of the conversation, just to just put it in where, where, it, where, it, where it goes. And so I just wanted to remind you, like all of us in this room, we, those of us who know Jesus, we can testify about Jesus in ordinary conversations as it comes up. So that's our passage, that's our sermon for this week. Um, like I said, I don't think Luke wrote this passage to be a lesson on slander or to be a lesson on how to give a testimony, right? I, I just think that, that those are things that happened in this story. There was slander in this story and there was testimony given in this story. So I use that as an opportunity to teach you about it. But I really do think as we have a look at the story, it is a link in the chain that's getting us to the next part of the story in Acts, which Lord willing, we will get to next week. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the gospel. Even though Paul didn't get a chance to explain the whole thing here, and I didn't get a chance to explain a whole lot of it even this morning. I thank you that when we look at this world and we see that sin has really messed it up and, and therefore messed us up, and then we realize we're responsible. It's not like sin is just something that happens to us. Like, we do it. And we know that you sent your son to save us, to save the world from the problem of sin and to save us from the consequences of our own sins. And so we thank you, Jesus, for the gospel. I pray that those of us who do not know it or yet believe it, that we would, that we would turn to you and trust in you as our Lord and our Savior, that we'd be so thankful that you died on the cross for our sins and that you're gonna undo the problem of sin and even forgive our particular sins. And for those of us who do know you, I pray that we would like re-worship you for that. I thank you for the story. I pray you'd help us as far as gossip and slander go. I pray you'd help us to guard our lips and do unto others as we would have them do unto us. I pray we would also not just be saying, well, I don't want to sin with my lips, so I'll just never say anything, right? No, there are times when we have to talk about you. And so I pray you'd help us to know when we need to keep our mouth shut and when we need to be moving those lips and telling people about you. So I pray you would guide us in that way. We thank you for your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.